The Vote 2018 podcast is brought to you by First Amendment Media, creators of the Vote 2018 podcast and deep reporting with Rex Carlin. Head on over to firstamendmentmedia.com to check out all the past episodes of both shows and to sign up for The Morning Rex, our email newsletter that launches March 26th. We're really excited about The Morning Rex, so sign up. It's totally free and will be the most content-diverse newsletter you'll ever sign up for. That's The Morning Rex newsletter on firstamendmentmedia.com. And you can follow us on Twitter at the handles at 1-S-T-A-M-E-N-D media. That's at First Amend Media and at Rex Carlin. That's at R-E-X-C-A-R-L-I-N for links to all the latest podcast episodes and more. Ron Hansen of the Arizona Republic joins me today to discuss the upcoming special election for Arizona's 8th Congressional District after Republican Trent Franks resigned over sexual misconduct allegations. Election night is April 24th, and Republicans look to have an edge at holding the seat, although the polling is showing Democrats beginning to close the gap a little in a historically Republican district. Let's get started. Can we get the background here on Arizona's 8th Congressional District special election? Why are we here today, and why are we voting on uh, a position that's only going to be filled for the next seven months, obviously, until the midterm elections happen. Can you give us the background a little bit? I know people in the know, people who've been paying attention, know about Trent Franks and know about what happened. But for those just getting into politics and for those who have sort of been on the fringe, not really paying close attention, could you tell us what exactly happened there? Sure. So Trent Franks was an eight-term Republican congressman representing the West Valley here in the Phoenix area. And in December, he resigned suddenly after information uh, became known that involved at least two of his staffers uh, alleging sexual misconduct by Congressman Franks. Um, One of them, the one that probably became most widely known, was his uh, interest in, in having one of them become a surrogate mother for his child and an offer of $5 million to do so, uh, which is, you know, just kind of mind-boggling for multiple reasons. The other one was uh, a staffer who he had tried to convince that uh, she was in love with him. And so Congressman Franks uh, abruptly resigned midway through his eighth term and created this opening for uh, this district now to get representation again. And starting today, we have the, uh, the early voting beginning for the general election. Before we get into the two candidates who made it through the primary, let's talk a little bit about the 8th Congressional District. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I believe this includes uh, the Sun City areas, which sort of indicate that this is an older demographic. That's right. This is definitely an older district. Uh, I think the median age of uh, voters in, in the primary, uh, at least on the Republican side, was in the mid-70s. Um, this is a place that has several retirement communities, and uh, it has upscale pockets to it, but it also has a significant working class uh, swath through it as well. It includes Luke Air Force Base and uh, a number of different suburbs in the western uh, side of the Phoenix area here. Now, to elaborate, yeah, just a little bit on, uh, so the Sun City areas there and the surrounding areas, there are a lot of 55 and over communities, correct? 
Right, and generally significantly more than 55. Uh, these are retirement communities uh, that uh, there are several of them in that area. And uh, again, these are folks who tend to be older, tend to vote uh, pretty regularly, and are also uh, fairly conservative. Let's go into the candidates a little bit. Uh, let's talk a little bit about both of them, Republican Debbie Lesko and Democrat Hiral Tipperneni. Uh, could you talk to us a little bit about who these candidates are, what they might be known for, and sort of the background on those two? Sure. So on the Republican side, we have Debbie Lesko. She's a former state senator. Uh, she resigned her position in the legislature uh, to run for this race. And she's been in Arizona state politics for some time, about nine years, I believe. She's really kind of established herself as uh, one of the more forceful advocates for school choice, which has um, been an especially uh, popular movement among conservatives here in Arizona. She is someone who has uh, risen into state. Uh, the state senate uh leadership circles and has been really seen as a a relatively stable um reliable vote uh, on conservative issues of all stripes here in in state politics she won the republican primary for this race uh in a 12 way 12 way race she um got about 36% of the vote, I think it was, uh, beating her nearest uh, competitor by around 12 points. She faced a number of former state legislators and others who just really uh, had even lower profiles and, and entered this race really as the favorite on the Republican side from the start and really never looked back. On the Democratic side, we have uh, Harold Tipperneni. She is a political newcomer. She's a physician by training. She worked as an emergency room physician uh, for many years. She has also uh, more recently worked as a, an advocate for cancer research and um, has been involved on, on that front uh, as well. She had a competitive Democratic primary, which is remarkable at all. In this district, Democrats didn't even field a candidate in the general election in 2014 or 2016 against Trent Franks. So the idea that there's even a Democrat running is a new thing in this district. And the fact that there was a a Democratic primary challenger was also uh, pretty new. We haven't seen that here since 2002. She uh, defeated a, a a transgender uh, Democratic activist, uh, Brianna Westbrook, in a um, relatively uh, competitive Democratic primary. She, Tipperneni, has really kind of established herself as someone who advocates for fact driven uh, policy solutions that are not really wrapped in partisan uh, uh, leanings as much as they are just a search for uh, good outcomes and, and that sort of thing. She's a relatively mainstream Democrat, uh, which sets her apart from some of the other Democrats who have had success lately in Alabama and Pennsylvania, who were really more conservative in their uh, Democratic uh, uh, policies. She is um, someone who advocates for universal health care, for example. She sees gun uh, violence as uh, essentially an epidemic, 
requiring some sort of uh, policy response. She has not really distanced herself from Nancy Pelosi, the divisive Democratic House minority leader. So she's kind of playing a relatively uh, straightforward Democratic uh, approach here in a district that leans to the Republicans by about 17 percentage points. So in Arizona, what, what's the criteria for voting in a primary? Because I see here that in that Democratic primary, there more than 36,000 people uh, voted, which I, I'd imagine must be a, a pretty significant turnout compared to the past in this district. Yeah, I don't know if it's technically a closed primary. I think it is. Uh, we register by party here, and Democrats must vote uh, in the Democratic primary if they vote. Uh, independents, I'm not sure uh, if they have to waive their uh, independent label or uh, if they just get to uh, uh, pick one ballot or the other. But um, it, this is a district where uh, Democrats are, again, outnumbered fairly significantly in the West Valley. We have the biggest segment of voters, though, statewide in, in this district as well, are people who are independents. They're not affiliated with any uh, of the leading parties, and these folks tend to vote conservatively, uh, you know, historically, but they're not uh, associating themselves with Republicans uh, altogether. So um, I think that in this race, you saw significant interest in uh, the Democratic race, that there even was one, and the uh, Republican side, there was a pretty crowded field that uh, generated a, a fair amount of interest among Republican voters here as well. And why is that? Because in seven months, the seat's going to be open again, and they're going to be racing in the midterms to fill that seat for the next two years. So why is there so much importance being placed on a seat that's only going to be filled for seven months? Well, you know, the short answer is uh, somebody's got to have that job. And, and if you have any designs on holding it for long, you want to get in and, and become an incumbent as soon as you can. So uh, the fact is that whoever wins this special election will run as an incumbent in the fall. And frankly, both these women uh, are likely to face each other again in the fall uh, in a general election, a regular general election for this seat. So um, clearly it would be advantageous to run as an incumbent. It helps with fundraising. It also helps establish their uh, their policy chops uh, to some people as well. So, you know, look, this is a, a you know, a special election for a relatively brief term uh, in the House, but it sets them up nicely for a longer stay. Is that something that these candidates are thinking about, that if I win this and I'm going to have to run again in seven months or, or well, there's probably not going to be much of a break between winning the special election and having to start campaigning. Is there some pressure there on, on either side to, if I win this, I need to get something I need to get something on the board quickly so that I could say that I've done something in D.C.? It's an interesting dynamic because I think that if, depending on who wins, um, the expectations might be um, uh, viewed a little differently. So if Debbie Lesko wins, for example, my guess is that her primary responsibility is to show that she is faithful to the Trump agenda 
and she is uh, representing the 8th District in a, in a conservative tradition, not unlike what Trent Franks did for many years here. Um, she probably would take uh, no chances to uh, go out on a limb on anything that would really put her at odds with Republican voters in the primary, which here is held in August for the regular elections. Um, but the, the reality, too, is that there's probably not going to be a lot of really controversial votes between now and November anyway. The House is largely taking care of most of its agenda, so uh, it just seems like we're kind of stuck with uh, a Congress that isn't going to take up much more before the elections these days. So Lesko probably wouldn't take many chances of, of being at cross purposes with the uh, the White House in, in her brief stay. If Dr. Tippernetti uh, wins, my guess is she's got to search for some kind of uh, issue, some kind of way to identify herself as somebody who is palatable to uh, Republican voters in November as well. She would be an incumbent, which is helpful, but she's still a Democrat in a district that really leans to the right pretty significantly. So she would need to try and find some way, some issue to latch on to that would keep her in the good graces of, of her voters uh, come November. So I think both both these women would be looking to make sure that uh, they haven't done anything to disqualify themselves come November. How has Lesko portrayed herself to potential voters? Is she um, falling right along with everything President Trump is saying? Is she more of a moderate, sort of a, a John McCain type Republican? Wh- wh- where does she fall on that and what's she trying to appeal to? You know, I, I think that the Republican primary really was a lot of uh, uh, people trying to establish their fealty to the Trump administration uh, more than anything else. Um, the border wall and uh, immigration and uh, border security more broadly, these are the issues that really kind of uh, get people uh, interested in in what their next member of Congress might do on the Republican side. I think Lesko hewed a uh, pretty conservative line on these issues. There really wasn't a lot of daylight between any of the Republican candidates on, on this uh, front. So much of it came down to personality. Debbie has been active in politics here for 20 years and I think just draws on a pretty deep reservoir of, you know, goodwill among conservatives in the West Valley. Um, She is, I think, uh, most interested in things like school choice. She is uh, probably going to be in short order if she gets to Washington, uh, a very reliable ally for Betsy DeVos and the school choice movement. She will also, I'm sure, uh, be very business friendly. She's uh, always had a reputation for being um, uh, especially friendly to business interests here in the state's legislature uh, and would probably continue in that tradition uh, in Washington as well. Are Democrats or Republicans looking at some of these other elections, other special elections in in Pennsylvania, Virginia, Alabama, uh, are are they looking at these and going, okay, we need to adjust based on what's happening across the country? Are are these comparable uh, situations? Obviously, the Senate race in Alabama had some really different circumstances, but uh, especially the, the... the seat that was just filled in Pennsylvania. Are, are there circumstances there that, that the people in Arizona, Democrats or Republicans, can look to and 
maybe have to adjust based on those results? Um, you know, so I think that the Democratic uh, momentum that we've seen around the country is finding its way here in Arizona as well. Um, but what that means is a little different here than it would be in Pennsylvania or in Alabama. So I I would expect that uh, Tipper Nenny should do significantly better than what Democrats have seen in recent cycles in this race. I mean, again, even the idea that there is a Democrat on the ballot is a switch for the Democrats in this race. Um, it is uh, there's been some polling in this race that shows her uh, within about 14 points of Debbie Lesko. That's not an especially close race, but uh, again, this is a district that voted for Donald Trump by uh, 21 percentage points. So it would fit that national trend of being uh, a tighter uh, outcome than what we saw in 2016 by that measure. She, um, I think, is has done a lot to try and tap into the. Uh, the great interest that we see among Democrats in Arizona and more broadly nationally, uh, the, the problem that she's going to run into here is just that structurally this district is a little different than uh, what we've seen in, in the Pennsylvania race and from the Alabama Senate race. The superficially, there are some similarities, of course, uh, the Pennsylvania district, for example, uh, voted for Donald Trump by about 20 percentage points. And this one in Arizona voted for Trump by 21. But the, there are some important differences here. The Pennsylvania district, for example, um, had a Democratic leaning registration among voters. They didn't vote Democratic in recent years, but they at least were not. Uh, ashamed to be associated with the party. They still kept that label. And in the last 20 years, they had elected a Democratic member of Congress uh, to represent that region. When you look at Arizona, this district uh, has a pretty substantial 17-point Republican lean to it. And they haven't elected a Democrat in Congress uh, since 1980. And that person, Bob Stump, uh, switched parties two months into his second term. So he basically had most of his career as a Republican in the West Valley. And it's been you know a, an entire generation since that region has voted uh, Democratic on balance. So the I think there's some other important differences. Again, the way that Connor Lamb talked about gun rights in Pennsylvania compared to uh, Tipperney and and her uh, problem with gun violence. Uh, you see, um, Connor Lamb really didn't have a primary to. Uh, become the Democratic nominee in Pennsylvania compared to Tipper Nenny, who had to uh, beat back somebody who is more of a Bernie Sanders type Democrat. So I think uh, these candidates here in Arizona, um, especially on the Democratic side, um, came to this point from a, a different process than what we saw in some of the other races. And obviously in Alabama, uh, Republicans had a, a really flawed candidate in Roy Moore that just made uh, Democratic gains there uh, significantly more easy to accomplish than if they had run somebody who was uh, even semi-credible uh, uh, you know, with more voters. 
for Democrats in this race, even if even if Tipper Nenny doesn't end up winning, what would be a margin of defeat that would really open eyes moving forward, whether that's in this district for the general in November or moving forward in this district in the next couple of years or something that the national audience can look to? I mean, what would open people's eyes as far as a margin of defeat in this race? So. I, I would say that um, taking these polls uh, as being our best indicator for the moment, if we see uh, Tipper Nanny lose by 14 points or less, uh, that sure feels like a, a pretty significant improvement for Democrats here. Again, they didn't even run a candidate for two cycles in a row, and they lost this district in the presidential race by 21 points. So to get to within 14 points or less – that is an improvement. Uh, it's still a loss for sure, but it does represent, I think, the beginnings of what Arizona State Democrats are trying to do, which is to become more viable all across the state. This is something that is going to be a long-term process, and um, they can't just use uh, victory or defeat as the only measure of that. So I think getting closer for them will represent real progress. And again, it's consistent with that national pattern of uh, Democrats, you know, are quick to point out the Pennsylvania race or Alabama uh, because those were ones that flipped and um, Democrats actually ended up winning races that seemed unwinnable uh, at first glance. But in all the special elections that they've held since the 2016 election, uh, Democrats have significantly uh, done better than what they did in 2016 in the presidential race. I would expect Arizona to be another uh, example of that. And, you know, just as a personal thing, I think that Tipper Nenny connects with people who are listening uh, pretty well. She's For somebody who's new to this, she's fairly polished and makes a good showing of herself. And the idea that she could do better than what the polls have her at at this moment uh, would not shock me. Uh, but again, to get below 10 points is probably asking about as much as you can get from a district where there's just not enough Democrats. The people that live in the 8th district, this demographic of people, have you guys been up there? Is there any polling on what their reaction has been to the first year plus of the Trump administration? And maybe how many of those people are doubling down on their support versus maybe their, some of their support is waning? What are we seeing in the 8th district as far as support for the president? Well, my understanding is that the Trump approval rating would be somewhere uh, on the order of about 60%. Um, so he is doing significantly better in the 8th district in Arizona than he's doing nationally, uh, where he's you know closer to 40 42%. So uh, he is held in much higher regard. It's why all the Republican candidates were trying to attach themselves so closely to, to his agenda. Um, he's relatively popular, but... Um, you know, the, the 8th District is uh, a fairly broad district as well. So um, there's diverse interests here that will uh, view different issues differently. Uh, for older voters, I'm not sure that they're as uh, uh, accepting of, for example, the, the president's uh, alleged um, uh, dalliances with uh, a porn star or uh, other marital infidelity. I, it's probably not enough to break their interest in, in him as the president, but uh, their approval of him may uh, slip a bit based on that. 
Um, but I, I would say that overall, this is a district that is uh, Republican by tradition, and uh, Donald Trump is is you know the person who's in office today, and and they are uh, most likely solidly on board with him to uh, through this election. What kind of money is being put into this race? Is this a national? Are, are there national interest groups putting money in? How much money is going into a race that maybe isn't even close enough for Democrats to pull it out? You know, we're starting to see some national money come into this race, but um, it's not all that significant. It's uh, probably less than seven hundred thousand uh, dollars being put in by. Uh, organizations like the Republican National Committee, the National Republican Congressional Committee. Uh, you know, we've seen some uh, super PACs starting to show an interest in this as well, uh, mostly with an eye toward making sure that this race doesn't slip into a, a more competitive posture. The Democrats have notably not invested in this race uh, very significantly. Um, Tippernetti has been pretty good as a, a campaign fundraiser, but not especially great. About half her money has come from herself, uh, just um, uh, putting her own money into the campaign. And uh, Debbie Lesko has been a fairly uninspired fundraiser as well, as far as we can tell. Um, but the money is starting to come in a little bit on the Republican side, I think mostly to uh, help break the national narrative that the Republican majority is imperiled and, and Republicans just keep doing uh, worse and worse everywhere. Um, just to keep this race in some perspective, uh, you know, so six or $700,000 coming from outside groups may sound like a lot, but, you know, Republicans invested about $8 million in the Pennsylvania race. So this one is starting to get some interest, but clearly it's on a very different uh, trajectory than what we saw, for example, in Pennsylvania. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. April 24th is the big day. Um, where can we follow you? I know you're writing a lot about this race and stuff. So where can we follow you as this race gets closer to uh, Election Day and, and through to November? Yeah. Um, so you can follow me on Twitter at Ronald J. Hansen, and that's H-A-N-S-E-N. And you can look for my stories on our website, and that's azcentral.com. All right. Thank you so much for coming on. My pleasure. Thanks for listening, everyone. We're officially on iTunes, so subscribe and listen there at hashtag vote2018. Or you can follow the SoundCloud channel, hashtag vote2018. And remember to head over to firstamendmentmedia.com to check out episodes from Deep Reporting with Rex Carlin and sign up for the Morning Rex newsletter. Deep Reporting with Rex Carlin is now also on iTunes, so subscribe, share, and rate over there as well. Follow us on Twitter on the handles at First Amend Media, that's at 1-S-T-A-M-E-N-D Media, and at Rex Carlin, that's at R-E-X-C-A-R-L-I-N on Twitter for all the latest information. I'm Rex Carlin, and you've been listening to the Vote 2018 Podcast. <laughs>